Welcome to a cult of personality, esoteric podcast extraordinaire. I'm Greg Kaminsky, and your co-host is Billy Hepper. Now, in episode number 219, we're joined by author Brian George to discuss his recent book, Masks of Origin, Regression in the Service of Omnipotence. Brian and his work are not the sort typically featured on this podcast, but I think you'll find that the intention and exploration of his writing goes towards the results of esoteric practice and the consideration of all the huge questions that define the meaning of our existence. This conversation is not unlike Brian's writing in that our pace is easy, our course is not linear, and through it, insights that are both wonderful and a bit surprising reveal themselves. If you appreciate humanity's struggle to know and find new ways of knowing, you'll enjoy this conversation. Give Brian some love and pick up his book if you enjoyed this interview. The Cult of Personality podcast is made possible by you, the listeners, and by the subscribers to chamberofreflection.com, our membership website, which aids us in the cause of informed, authentic, and accessible interviews about Western esotericism. Thank you again. Because of your support, we're able to bring you recordings of this caliber and many more to come. The intro music is Awakening by Paul Avgerinos, and the outro music is Hidden by Miles Cochran. Howdy, Brian. Can Welcome. See me okay? Yeah, how are yeah, you doing? I'm, I'm not very used to Zoom, so I was <laughs> hoping I wouldn't get it totally screwed up. No, it's all good. How's everything been? Uh, kind of a strange month, just recovering from a cold that came and went very unpredictably since the beginning of November, but feeling pretty good today. Good. Oh, Billy, just to put this in a little better context, I've I met Brian years ago in boston and um had been to his home a couple times i think because he and his wife i don't know if they still do but they used to host like a salon where different people would read or perform or talk or what have you and it was like a very eclectic group and very interesting evenings so we did that right up until the start of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Every time we've thought of restarting, there seems to be some new COVID variant coming up. And uh, everybody we know has different attitudes about getting together. We know some people that are anti-vaxxers, but are extremely cautious about even eating at restaurants. Other people who are you know, completely paranoid about COVID and haven't left their apartments. And uh, you know, people pretty much a wide range in between. So. We had thought of doing it maybe through Zoom uh, and even started um, trying to create some online version of the salon, but it's a very, very physical event. I don't know, there's something um, to me very ritualistic about getting people together in physical time and space that's different, even from the best conversations on Zoom or whatever. I'm enormously grateful for being able to reach out to people around the world and meet people that I've I'd never be able to meet otherwise. So even though I'm somewhat of a somewhat of a Luddite, I don't necessarily write off the 
importance of technology, but I really like to keep things very simple. And uh, this current version of the salon that we've been doing up until the pandemic, I think started around 2011. We've been doing doing kind of a revolving salon with friends for about 10 years before that, where we'd each take turns hosting something in our house and invite a few more people outside of the immediate friend group. Then um, I can't remember, did I meet you through Evolver Boston? That's a really good question. I know you had done a lecture or two. It must have been. Did you know uh, Joe Moore? Is this oh, yeah. Name? Okay. Yeah, he was, so, he was he the leader of Evolver Boston for about a year and a half. Yeah, so that must have been the way we met. Yeah, I never really wanted to be in the first position. Uh, way back when Evolver started around 2008, I think, uh, Daniel Pinchbeck had invited me to lead the Boston group, but I knew that I would burn out if I had tried to do it. Um, which happened to pretty much everybody who tried to assume that role, including Joe. Uh, I'm very hesitant to be a part of anything that uh, where I don't feel like I'm really moving with the current. I don't want to try to force something into being. I really want to kind of be uh, like a catalyst and enabler a vehicle. I want to allow things to kind of move through through me to nudge them in the right direction to offer insights work uh, other contributions but i don't really want to be in charge of things i want to always step a little bit to the side i feel like i can keep my perspective better and also figure out exactly what i can contribute somehow being in a position of full responsibility um it not only doesn't really appeal to me it really goes against my essential nature i'm really not given to flights of guarded optimism i tend to be fairly pessimistic by nature and um, I think to be a good organizer, organizer, you really have to be something of a natural extrovert and just assume that everything is going to turn out for the best. Mm-hmm. And I went through a period of, like that probably when I first moved to Boston in my 20s, or actually I was 20. Things were really happening in the city in kind of a late countercultural way. Um, just enormous kind of explosive, surreal energy. Uh, people from different uh, uh, art forms, music, art, writing, whatever, uh, kind of mixed and collaborated in very unpredictable ways, um, turned into like the punk scene toward the the late 70s, but wasn't really like the punk scene in New York or L.A. It had a much softer edge to it and more of a surreal quality. So that was a a time that I really trusted in synchronicity and just assumed that everything would naturally unfold. But uh, that was kind of an exception in terms of the arc of my development. Um, Anyway, so Evolver, you know, was fascinating in that I got to meet you and, um, you know, a number of other mostly local artists and musicians uh, and writers. Um, But it was just enormously difficult to organize um i think actually like pushing a string or hurting cats would probably have been easier um i actually made a note of some of the subjects we would cover in the the various meetings uh, urban gardening the gift economy intentional communities alternative health climate change ancient mythology psychedelics shamanism the relationship of technology to the psyche the newest fear the mayan calendar reincarnation polyamory, trans states, crop circles, and UFOs. Hmm. Um, 
But the trouble is we would just sort of lurch from one to the other. It was both a local and uh, an international organization. And the two, two levels of organization didn't really mix. Uh, so we were trying to kind of align ourselves with the, the uh, suggestions of the larger group. But people interested, let's say, in urban gardening may not have any interest in UFOs or people interested in the gift economy or you know, new theories of uh, economic justice or whatever might have no interest at all in ancient mythology. So there was just kind of a disconnect in the basic theory of organization. Then um, a lot of it too seemed to have been uh, kind of focused on 2012, which acted as a, sort of like a strange attractor or whatever for uh, attitudes, theories, orientations, uh, however you would put it, uh, that wouldn't necessarily normally come together, then whatever people were expecting, you know, it acted, that year acted as a kind of projection screen, a little bit like maybe Obama's campaign, you know, people were waiting for something to happen. And uh, really saw it more in terms of their own unfulfilled, you know, needs and desires and longings then in terms of what was actually happening in front of them. Then after 2012, I don't know, things seemed to just sort of drift apart into uh, separate directions again. But it confirmed my own sense that it's very important to start small, to work with kind of a coherent circle of energy, people that you, not necessarily just people that you know, but people who maybe know each other, friends of friends, um, so with some sort of a basic structure that also is capable of kind of moment by moment renewal. So um, when my wife and I started the uh, salons at our house in 2011, uh, we had the original circle of friends plus a good number of people from Boston, Evolver Boston, and then other people um, that would come month by month. And probably the the word that people always used to describe it was magical. It didn't really correspond to much of anything people had experienced before uh, would often start about five with an hour for eating and talking. Then presentations would begin about six. And the tricky part was really kind of organizing the presentation. So each person would be given about 10 minutes to present. Then there'd be another five to 10 minutes of commentary. Then there'd be periodic breaks. And we would try to alternate between writing, uh, music, storytelling, art, whatever and keep some sort of a flow going. And often they'd go to like 12.31 in the morning, but with almost no sense of time passing in any any normal way. So we'll get back to that later. That's also one of the uh, preoccupations of the book is um, just the nature of time and how variable it is. Good segue to talk about your book, Masks of Origin regression in the service of omnipotence uh maybe it would be best brian if if you could describe your book and why you wrote it and you know what it is you're communicating to us well there's a line in one of the essays in the book the shortest distance between between two points may turn out to be a labyrinth so in describing the book probably i would have to take something like that approach um, my approach to writing is almost the exact opposite of the way most prose writers 
approach it. Um, I began as a, an artist and a poet and wrote three or four books of poetry before I started to write prose. Um, and there was a major transition from one to the other. So um, just as a kind of a simple description, uh, I would say Massive Origin is an exploration of key spiritual and creative turning points experienced partly from the inside out by from the perspective of person from a particular time and culture, and then also viewed from the outside in from the viewpoint of some larger, more expansive aspect of the self. Uh, I often think in terms of the ancient Greek idea of the persona and daemon, um, but I'm also a little bit involved in uh, leukemia. My wife is a leukemia priestess, and I've received some sort of surface level initiation. She's gone much further. But uh, in leukemia or the Yoruba tradition, there's also a concept of the, uh, the ori and the apori, like the personal head and the primordial presence, which corresponds to, say, Zoroastrian tradition with, I think it's the Urvan and Pravati. And then you have other concepts in Kabbalah, let's say, of three souls, and then in ancient Egypt of nine souls. So my concern in the book is how to put the uh, perspectives together, um, partly on a theoretical level, but also from a direct experiential level. Um, so it's part of a much larger attempt to kind of integrate the personal and the archetypal. Uh, people often ask the reference to omnipotence, and that's a title that just sort of came to me. Uh, it's not really something that's easily explainable, but uh, probably going back to the early 80s, I had a sense that I was somehow indestructibly connected to some primordial whole. Um, I was very interested in uh, Parmenides when I was younger, but I couldn't really quite decipher some of his phrasing um, in terms of, uh, I think it's something like there's only one way that it is and it's impossible for it not to be. Uh, but by that, he seems to wipe out the distinction between existence and non-existence. Like what is, is whatever can be imagined, but that can be virtually anything beyond the normal realm of reason. So on the one hand, I felt, you know, this sense of primordial connection, but on the other, a sense of exile or, you know, brokenness that began at a pretty early age. So jumping around, um, there are multiple origins of the book, I think. Um, rather than coming up with a theme, and theme or thesis and trying to illustrate or prove that, which uh, would be the kind of the normal approach. Um, it's often very frustrating when I find sometimes like, let's say a you know, journal of contemporary post-Jungian thought, and I think, oh, I have an essay they might really like. But then I look at the submission guidelines and you're supposed to submit a proposal with a breakdown of paragraphs and exactly what the argument is gonna be in each paragraph. My own approach to writing is the exact opposite. I tend to believe, um, tend to really put my trust in what I don't know. Even if I do come up with some sort of a theme and outline, whatever, that tends to be something that I work against. I don't necessarily want to 
rely on anything that is within my immediate grasp. I think probably because I, you know, had several uh, decades of experience as a poet. Uh, I was really interested in working with what was on the edges of my uh, understanding or experience. And then uh, when I began to write prose, I tried to bring that same sense of edginess to the prose writing. So I think one place to begin would be um, when I actually started to write prose, not necessarily with this book, but with probably the first piece in the book, uh, not the first piece sequentially, but the first piece that's uh, in the book that I wrote, which would be the, um, began as a eulogy to my father uh, when he died in 1998. So um, it's a very, complex relationship. Um, we had finally gotten to know each other probably about for the 10 years before his death. And then I had talked to him on, I think it was New Year's Day in 98. And then the next day he was dead, uh, killed by his doctors who had given him three medications that should never have been taken together. So he was there one day, then gone the next. And just it was a really, uh, it was not just upsetting, it was very disorienting. Um, just the idea that something could be completely present and then just yanked away. Um, so, I mean, that's one aspect of time that, you know, things are pretty much irreversible. You know, a single comment can destroy a friendship. You know, a single accident can... I ended up tripping once, rushing to work and breaking both bones of my wrist. And, you know, that acted up off and on up until a couple of years ago when I had an operation to correct uh, carpal tunnel syndrome. So I have very much the sense of, you know, linear time and just um, yeah, the possibility of mistakes and regret and role of accidents. On the other hand, I have a sense that somehow... Um, our understanding of time is really not correct. You know, we're seeing things from kind of a very limited ground level, um, you know, with the possibility of multiple perspective points from which time might appear you know, far more circular or labyrinthine than linear. Uh, anyway, my father's third wife, Judith, had invited me to do the eulogy, and I was very reluctant to do it. Partly because I just didn't write prose much. I think I'd written, last time I'd written some might have been like 1982 when I was working on a forward for a book that I put out in 84. And I didn't really think of myself as a prose writer. Um, not that a eulogy has to necessarily be a serious piece of writing, but I have kind of a horror of conventional sentiments. And also, I didn't really want to smooth over the complexity of the relationship. I really took the invitation as a, both a personal, creative, and even kind of a cosmological challenge. Um, I was quite sick at the time. I had a horrible cold. I could barely talk. Um, I was uh, on the trip to Colorado, to Denver. I was sitting between a gigantic fat guy on one side and a woman with a baby on the other. And I was twisted up like a pretzel. My back completely went out. I didn't like get back to uh, being without pain for about two months afterwards. I had to drink like hot tea and take showers constantly because I was barely able to speak. 
and I couldn't sleep. I uh, didn't really want to write anything out. I was really doing my best to say something honest, which was a very uh, complex thing to do. And I was just sort of turning possibilities of what I might be able to say over in my head, turning paragraphs upside down, starting over, you know, scrapping whole eulogies. And then about three days later, after really not sleeping at all and being extremely sick, I mean, it was kind of like a, a little bit of an initiatory experience. I was in kind of an odd liminal space, drifting back, you know, through decades of time to about the age of four. I finally managed to piece something together and gave it pretty much without uh, even a slight slip up. And the whole process made me realize that I had left pretty much whole worlds out of my poetry. I had split myself apart at kind of an early age. And from the time that I began to write and do artwork seriously when I was 16, I had separated off the spiritual and the creative from the unresolved traumatic personal stuff. Not really even deliberately, but just as a matter of practicality. I just didn't know what to do with the, the more unwieldy stuff. Uh, and it was enough of a challenge to find the resources I needed creatively. Um, anyway, so that planted a kind of a seed. Um, I realized that I had to find some way to bridge the gap between, let's say, the age of four when my parents had split up and six when it finally sunk in and everything that had happened between then and 1998. So um, part of it was you know, immediately focused on my father. Um, I have really vivid memories of the time when my parents were together and before like the age of four to like three to six. And I tend to associate that period with uh, early morning sunlight, um, had felt an incredible relationship to birds. And the minute I drift back, I just I'm overwhelmed by a sense of bird song, both like physical bird song and some other more supernatural kind of bird song. Um, I remember having almost no sense of time, waking up like at 5:30 in the morning, getting on my rocking horse and singing for three hours. Uh, the first, I think, the first essay in the book um, describes how the Lack of any sense of time got me into trouble. I, again, used to get up like about five, five thirty, and I was. We were living in Natick at the time in a small, late seventeenth-century house, and I got up and wandered off into the woods because I wanted to find a, a rusted eighteenth-century cannon that I had seen. But I was gone for I think from five thirty till about nine, with no awareness of any time going by, and. Thinking back, I just remember like bright lights, again, kind of figures with birds' heads and something like um, glass harmonica music. And then I drifted back and walked into uh, just explosive anger on the part of my father, which kind of shook me out of whatever that very early childhood state was into some kind of sequential memory. Before that, I have images, uh, but no stories, and that's the first story I can really piece together. Um, but for the most part, I loved my father. We you know, had great adventures and I just couldn't believe my parents had split up. So there was um, 
sense when I finally realized it almost of being expelled from Eden, just with like gates clanging shut somehow, which, you know, I kind of associate with the, uh, the doors to my uh, grammar school, which was a kind of a pretty grim working class grammar school where uh, the major thing was just to get kids to behave, <laughs> which my major uh, goal at the time during that you know, particular period of education was just to kind of stare out of the window and dream of what I'd be doing after school. Um, so anyway, um, I saw my father maybe once a year after that until I was 11, then he disappeared completely. Uh, he had moved to Mexico, begun a company and started a second family. So got back together when I was first out of art school and married to my first wife. And it was a very odd experience. We were almost like, um, not like twins, but like brothers who had sort of an adversarial relationship. We had, you know, many kind of interesting qualities in common um, in terms of taste in classical music, uh, love of like Mesoamerican sculpture, oceanic masks, um, similar favorite composers, um, shells, drifts, driftwood, rusted things from the ocean. But he was completely focused on business, kind of achieving very affluent position in the world. And I was, had absolutely no interest in any of that and was focused on kind of writing and spiritual exploration, which he thought of as a, an absolute waste of time. And he kept sort of nudging me to go back to school to study business and uh, in a phrase that I could never believe, uh, to take my place in the world as a man among men, which I thought he was joking, but <laughs> that's sort of the way he uh, saw, saw things. So anyway, all of that presented an enormous challenge with the eulogy, and I was able to kind of sum it up. But um, so those were two two turning points that I describe in the book. Um, and... I became aware, you know, during the kind of drifting back through time to try to piece together some actual honest comments about the relationship that I could use for the eulogy, that um, I was really just at the beginning of my you know, creative explorations. I had done a lot of work poetically, but almost everything I had done had to do with a kind of, you know, say avant-garde exploration in poetry and also really a kind of attempt at transcendence spiritually, even though I had been studying Taoist meditation where the goal is not only to bring energy, you know, up from the soles of your feet through the spine to the head and then down through the front of the body. I was doing that energetically, but not really in terms of any kind of personal biographical information. I was just leaving an enormous uh, body of information out. That's great, thank you for sharing all those stories, Brian. And first of all, welcome to Occult of Personality. It's great to have you here. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I'm just curious, just circling back to the book, um, was this your your first published work? And and also a follow-up, how how was the book received? Can you tell us a little bit about the reactions and feedback you've you've had on it? It is, well, it's, um, I put out a book, uh, Ex Revenge of the Autogenes, kind of a Gnostic, book of Gnostic prose poems back in 84. Uh, 60 copies that were snatched up by friends. So that was technically, I guess, the first book I published, but I had put that um, just kind of almost like in an alternate dimension up until this past spring. 
Um, but this is the first book published by a publisher. And um, we have, so we'll be doing, this is Untimely Books, which is the imprint connected with Metapsychosis and uh, Cosmos Co-op. Mm. Uh, Metapsychosis is the idea of psyche to psyche communication and uh, Cosmos Co-op is sort of a loose network of people kind of on the edges of contemporary philosophy, spirituality, art, literature. We're concerned with finding some mode of communication that goes to a deep intuitive level beyond just the communication of ideas, which is pretty much the perfect kind of a group and you know, publishing company for me. Um, so the book came out about a month ago, but I've, as I mentioned, I've been pretty much wrestling with a cold off and on since then. Reception has been uh, excellent in terms of the new people that have read it, people that have had some familiarity with it before. Um, uh, once people get the work, they tend to be extremely enthusiastic and even see the work as being you know, catalyt catalytic or life-changing in some way in terms of opening up new both spiritual and verbal possibilities. But it people really break down, I think, into three groups. Some people... Unfortunately, the editors of many journals <laughs> don't tend to get it at all. It just doesn't, the work doesn't really fit into any normal category, um, which is one, one reason that I haven't published until now. Most publishers these days really want a book that exists in relation to the current market. It has to be a book on astrology, Buddhism, uh, cookbooks by the stars, whatever it happens to be, something that they know has sold and is likely to sell, you know, beyond a certain number of copies. Right. Um, then, uh, anyway, that's one probably pretty large group of people. Then there's people in the middle that seem to be, you know, intrigued by the work, but comment I often got, particularly when I first started publishing in uh, Reality Sandwich, where I published about, I think about two dozen essays between 2007 and 2013 which is kind of like my major breakthrough as a prose writer in terms of connecting with an audience. Um, things would often generate anywhere from like 30 to 150 comments, but the kind of recurring negative comment I got is, why can't you say things more simply or directly? Why do you have to be always presenting us with kind of puzzles and disjunctions? So one of the challenges of this book and other recent revisions, I finished, um, six books now over the past three years that are pretty much done. Challenge has been to make things both much more lucid and, you know, rigorously argued at the same time that I'm also making them more expansive and adventurous. So I never really revise in one direction. Anyway, that tends to be the, the middle group of people who uh, would just like things to be more linear. Then for people who really are excited about the work. There seems to be a kind of a, a breakthrough moment. They may have actually been in that middle group, but then for people who finally get the work, there's a kind of aha moment where a lot of things that seem to be obstructions become, um, things suddenly fit together. It's just like an aha moment and then kind of a leap to a larger perspective. Thank you. That must make it all worthwhile when you find that niche group of people that just gets it right away. It's an amazing experience. Yeah. My goal is really not to be even widely known, just to find 
kind of the people that are meant to read the work. Yeah. So Brian, I guess I'm curious following up from what you said just now, what do you think it is that allows for some people to sort of really grok what you are trying to say and others seem to miss the point entirely or maybe they enjoy the sort of overall thrust of what you're doing but can't can't actually appreciate the specific work as you put it uh your writing and what you're expressing sort of misses the mark for them on some level and i'm just curious like what what is it that's happening there if you know because I, th- I feel like that's pretty intriguing and 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 as a as a reader of your book i'm that that's like i feel like that's like the pivot point for me i think you know that can be approached on a couple of different levels on the one hand there's just the level of communication of information people are used to particularly these days reading things online quickly scanning for information not really reading at the speed that you would read something out loud. So I think there's a physical aspect to my work. Um, I mean, I really kind of grew up engaging with writers on a very tactile level. Um, For example, when I first read Rambo, uh, Season in Hell and Illuminations, I think I probably reread the book over the first two years, maybe, I don't know, 30, 40 times, same thing with Rilke's uh, Duino Elegies and Sonnets to Orpheus, same thing with uh, Nietzsche. Um, So for me, writing is a very physical experience. I wanted to create a book, for example, to be held in the hand. And I often tell people that my goal is not to be read so much as to be reread. And people, I think, tend to be moving much too quickly for me. They want to kind of get from the beginning to the end of something and figure out what it means. Whereas my whole method of understanding, both the way I read and write, is to go deeper and deeper into something, to slow things down to almost an unimaginable slowness. Um, Like, for example, when I started um, junior year of high school, I had gone from a pretty horrific parochial school to an excellent um, excellent school on the other side of Worcester, much more affluent side. So I'd gone from reading Joyce Kilmer's Trees sophomore year to reading Elliot's The Wasteland junior year. But it was a complete shock. I mean, I was really excited. I was surrounded by people who had had good teachers from kindergarten on who you know, were, could write perfect college essays when I could barely struggle to put one together. So, um, yeah, I really cre- began to treat many poets, let's say, as uh, people who were presenting me with koans, things I really couldn't understand, but had to change myself in some way to even begin to enter into or grapple with. So I would just reread things out loud, usually to myself, over and over, till I managed to kind of assume the right, uh, the voice and the visionscape of the writer. And I guess that's kind of what I not necessarily expect, but hope to get from readers that they'll actually spend the time they need to be able to move at the deeper rhythms of the book, which are also designed 
in a very incantory way to uh, to lead them into deeper spaces. So that's one level. You know, I just I'm not necessarily a communicator of you know easy to grasp information, and I throw throw in certain disjunctions and roadblocks just as a part of the style. Not necessarily to be confusing, but really just to almost like a speed bump in a road to slow people down and get them to uh, kind of back up a bit. There's a deeper level, though, or a different level, where I think people are actually, whatever reason, a little bit afraid of, I'm not sure if it's the writing or the cosmology behind it. Um, I had one very odd experience way back in, I think it was 87. Um, I was working at a, a place where the uh, director of public relations, you know, is a very intelligent woman and we had a number of discussions about my writing and she seemed to be sort of intrigued and had been asking me for a couple of months, you know, um, you know, if you have a chance, maybe you could print out a few things and show them to me. I was somewhat hesitant just because I don't fit into corporate situations very well and tend to be you know, not necessarily even guarded, but just aware of the separation between worlds. I have kind of like a different persona for each and a certain each person, but at least each group of people that I'm encountering. So I held off for a while. I finally said, oh, well, you know, she's going to be leaving in a week or two anyway. Why don't I, you know, print out about you know, 40 or 60 pages of new writing to give to her? And she was absolutely terrified. She actually went to the head of the company and complained that I might be some sort of a psychotic and actually hired a bodyguard to accompany her around the site until uh, she went, left about a week and a half later. You know, I was doing things like explorations of Mayan mythology and sort of archetypal incantations, which to me didn't seem particularly scary, but... Um, Anyway, they represented a kind of world space that she was completely unfamiliar with. And she, you know, sort of like in horror movies, um, you almost never see any mention of the supernatural without it somehow either quickly or slowly being associated with some sort of horror. Um, you know, often things will appear to be sort of you know, mysterious and wonderful, kind of like, let's say, the beginning of. Um, what is the, uh, the series of movies about the Jurassic Park? You know, people are kind of looking at the little uh, Tyrannosaurus behind a fence or something and saying, oh, isn't that exciting and colorful? But then you know, something goes haywire. And then what appears to be, appear to be beautifully imaginative and exciting, you know, somehow becomes horrific. And that seems to be the way often people approach the supernatural in this culture. You know, it's something that may be intriguing at a distance, but, you know, has to be approached with high suspicion. And then I don't know, the kind of mystery and horror get mixed up in very peculiar ways. So I think that could be some one thing that's happening with my writing too. Uh, there's like an awareness of, you know, say the transience of the culture, uh, constant awareness of death and awareness of, you know, the challenges posed by psychic depths. Um, in a way that I'm extremely now comfortable with because I've been kind of wrestling with certain things from an early age. But for people approaching them from the outside, you know, there's a maybe a 
certain feeling of darkness associated with my work that I don't necessarily see myself at all. I see it as being pretty luminous, but it's a luminosity with a lot of challenges mixed in. Thank you. That's interesting. Brian, I would love if you could just expand a little bit more kind of on the the overarching overview of your book, because it kind of unfolds in a very dreamlike way, which I appreciated, but there is definitely your, your personal story in there as well. Just curious what your approach was when you're sitting down and, and recording your memories and experiences. Did you, were you working from journals or notes or? Well, it's, um, it's an odd kind of a book. It's a mixture of, you know, personal stories, some going back to early childhood, a lot of them going back to teen years when I really began to uh, become aware of some sort of a calling. I had no way to define it at that moment. Um, I don't think the word shaman was in use at that point. Um, but I had the concept of something like that as a becoming in some way like a messenger between worlds, a seer. I mean, those are very you know, kind of grand terms. Um, Greg, you're, uh, uh, you have your book on Pico della Mirandola was a mm. major influence when I was in uh, senior in high school. I had a course called the uh, Cultural and Intellectual History of Europe with a very peculiar teacher, Sam Sleeper, who was kind of a frustrated college professor who ended up teaching in high school. So he was brilliant, but really kind of uh, annoyed with his position and sort of drifted in, in and out of the physical space he was in. But I found him to be just a wonderfully challenging and mysterious figure, even though he was really kind of obnoxious. But anyway, he introduced me to uh, Pico senior year, and it kind of crystallized to some extent, what I'd been reaching for, groping for really on a personal level from the age of 16. Um, I very kind of abruptly discovered that I could write. Um, when I was growing up, my friends and I were pretty good students at a horrible school, but we spent virtually all of our free time outside, which I think probably was good for me in later life that I began with some sense of being grounded in the physical world. Um, so we, you know, either hung out or played baseball or climbed trees or rode bikes or went camping or you know, skiing, uh, urban exploring. Um, Worcester was Worcester was built on hills, I think seven hills like Rome. And there were all kinds of, uh, kind of very uh, densely overgrown backyards on steep slopes. And we were kind of prodigious trespassers and we would often roam around uh, just exploring, playing war, whatever we happened to do through people's backyards. We'd actually set up a clubhouse in somebody's um, basement at one point, um, an older guy who was unaware of his surroundings, and we managed to use it for about three or four months before we were finally discovered and kicked out. Then, <laughs> anyway, at 16, I had a sense of, I guess the ground being yanked from beneath me uh, was before I began to do psychedelics, but the effect was something similar. I had a sense of um, just somehow an abyss opening before me or underneath me, which was terrifying on the one hand, but I had a sense of like surging energy um, in terms of actual kind of spiritual energy, which was kind of painful and shocking, but also creative energy, which just swept me along. Um, I remember bringing Mr. Sleeper a 16-page poem I had written one night. He found two lines that he liked. 
uh, that thought that I might show some promise as a writer. Uh, but again, I was so impressed with them, I took that as being kind of ultimatum to improve myself and became much more ser seriously involved in you know, reading and uh, studying philosophy and psychology. But um, reading Pico gave me a sense of general outlines of what I might have had in mind um, in terms of becoming kind of a vehicle for higher energies or messenger between dimensions. So a lot of the book is kind of sort reasonable part of the book is sent, set in those teen years from about 16 to let's say about 20 when I moved to Boston when another shift took place. And I think um, in writing Massive Origin, that was one of the driving factors, kind of rediscovering or returning to kind of the uh, source years of my creativity. When I began to think of myself as a writer, as a spiritual explorer, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, that's the odd thing about it. Um, I had grown up with so many bad teachers that um, I wasn't really looking to anyone else for uh, any kind of external authority. And it was stage in Worcester too, where the counterculture was beginning to disintegrate and certain element of paranoia had crept in. And there were a lot of uh, like acid ca casualties who had joined religious cults who would hang around on street corners with very attractive women to uh, kind of lure you in. And um, I was extremely cautious about falling under anyone's influence. So I did have one teacher in high school who was both kind of a creative and spiritual guy, Sukes Tigliano. But for the most part, I tended to fly by the seat of my pants. Um, the World War II phrase, which apparently is quite accurate uh, 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 in terms of flying, that uh, you're actually going by sensations that are not like visual or intellectual, something like purely physical and instinctive. And I had a sense, um, really beginning one night when I was 16, of something having opened up in terms of something that actually was like a depth that were just about to swallow me, a sense of kind of the abyss looking back at me in the Nietzsche sense, um, but also of kind of sense of unbounded creative possibilities that uh, I was utterly, uh, how should I put it, unworthy of, uh, unable to harness, uh, barely able to even imagine, but that also were making, uh, I felt a, a kind of creative ultimatum had been you know, placed on me that would take really years to even begin to understand, uh, let alone to actualize. But um, Pika's idea that you know humans are in one sense homeless, but also the only creatures that can be um, at home or active on every level of creation. That sort of became my, my goal at the time. Um, it was a period, period I would say, of like near, near insanity, but also of like free-flowing visionary landscapes. So that was another key turning point in the book. And uh, so I think the book is kind of a tour through, you know, various... Um, sudden openings or turning points of that type. Um, it doesn't really progress in terms of any normal linear sequence um, because I don't really experience my life that way. There are you know, considerable stretches where you know, nothing in particular happens. I'm just sort of going about my business 
I grew up in a working class family of storytellers, which was productive, but you know, people who really didn't have any grand idea of how they fit into the world. They were sort of content to just make do with whatever circumstances they had. Um, my grandfather's father, for example, came over toward the end of the uh, potato famine. And um, my grandfather had grown up with a lot of stories of like near starvation, pregnant women dropping from hunger in the streets. And my family mostly was concerned just about financial security, you know, get a good job at the post office, uh, school teacher, become a priest. Um, my grandfather worked off and on for the same factory since he was about 13, uh, finished high school at night. So I really had a sense of somehow operating outside of normal social channels, not really with any particular goals of becoming famous as a writer, but really just pursuing pretty much single-mindedly, um, you know, that particular uh, creative and spiritual challenge that um, yeah, I first intuited probably when I was 16. And it was a very odd thing. It was, on the one hand, like something very far away, but I, looking back at it over the past two years, what really came back to me was that I could kind of hear my current voice speaking. I mean, there was a literal sense of hearing a voice speaking somewhere like in the room or in my mind or over distances, you know, over oceans, whatever. It was not a very odd experience, but a voice saying certain things in a certain rhythm, which looking back now, I realize is actually the rhythm of my mature writing um, that I was hearing without actually hearing the words. I could hear kind of the rhythm, uh, the, you know, the tone of the words, I could sense, like on a physical level, the uh, content, the visionary spaces that the, the words might be opening up. Um, but they just weren't graspable. They were present really much more as, um, uh, I don't know, almost as a kind of humiliation just to show me like how much I had to learn. So on the one hand, there was a sense of kind of grandiose expansion, you know, I would go through periods, particularly as a teenager, of falling into kind of, kind of ignoring all of the warning signs of inflation, you know, kind of being possessed by archetypal energies or kind of forming grandiose images of myself. On the other hand, I knew without too much self-examination that that uh, really wasn't accurate, but there was sort of a tug of war going on between something kind of tiny and broken and something, you know, very large and indestructible. Mm. So that's, you know, one of the, uh, the goals of the book is to kind of bridge that opposition, you know, to allow whatever that larger voice is to speak without necessarily defining myself as being of any particular importance. Um, but then also to lift up personal information um, kind of as a gift to the beyond in a way that makes it more than purely circumstantial. It's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. So I was wondering, um, I have a couple of excerpts that relate to things we were talking about. I wonder if it uh, might be a good idea to read um, a little bit from the book. I think so. What do you think, Billy? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe three selections we could uh, possibly get to. Uh, we'll see where we are. But 
some things are, you know, I can say them much more effectively uh, in prose than I could in conversation. And then we can kind of fill in the background information or whatever around uh, the excerpt. So I thought we could also move on to, I'd focused a little bit on kind of early, um, you know, spiritual and creative turning points. We can move on maybe to things a little bit later on. As I mentioned, my book really is not a regular memoir in any sense. There are big, big gaps in it. I kind of leap from, you know, one significant moment to another. And it's not really a linear um, narrative at all. It's really more of a kind of a record of breaks within the normal flow of time. So my sense for quite a while now is that uh, all of us have a kind of pre-existent story, uh, which functions almost as a kind of DNA. It's not completely determinative. It sort of sets up a basic structure, almost like a chart for jazz improvisation. So I think, you know, I mentioned yesterday, I'm very much aware of the irreversibility of time, how, you know, one chance meeting or terrible accident can really change the course of your life. But there, there's another aspect to, uh, to the flow where things also um, kind of happen when they're supposed to happen, even if that's not immediately apparent. There's certain key people that we're supposed to meet or experiences that we're supposed to have. So even if they happen in very unpredictable ways, um, somehow uh, it's part of, part of a pattern that becomes more apparent, I think, as you get older and also from you know, perhaps perspectives of before birth, after death, or during other dimensional experiences. Um, for example, I, I'm absolutely certain that I was meant to meet my wife, Denny. Um, we met uh, at the insistence of mutual friends in 1994. Um, but it was a very odd thing. I was wrapped up with finishing a book and wasn't really paying that much uh, attention to the invitation and uh, canceled a couple of meetings I'd set up with Denny and she was annoyed to the point that almost she almost wasn't planning to talk to me again. Then we got together and probably within less than a minute, there was some sort of immediate recognition, a sense of like a whole history that was um, kind of tangible without necessarily being visible. And I think we moved on to thinking about marriage within the first month or two, or at least I did. But the odd thing was we had actually been in many of the same places uh, over and over back in the late 70s and early 80s. Then uh, he was a member of an all-girl punk group called Bound and Gagged. And my first wife and I were big fans of the group and probably saw them about a dozen times. And I'd also been one of the organizers of a it could last for about five years, a series of performance events called MAPS, not the psychedelic one, the current one, um, but a series of events held in an artist loft and we would have performance artists, uh, music, uh, art exhibits, uh, open readings, various types of events that often would attract about 200 people. We actually managed to make about a thousand dollars a night on it. And Denny had been to that a number of times also, and we had, any number of mutual friends that we discovered later on and had been to events in various artist lofts, but never happened to bump into each other until the time was right. So, um, you know, the, uh, 
both of us were there in some sense, but not really the people we would later become. And then in 94, both of us actually had gone through a spiritual initiation in 1990 and gone through major, some sort of a major transformation in the years between then and the time we met. And um, there's something just incredibly inevitable and easy about it when it finally happened, even though it was something that really was kind of unlikely at that moment. It was much more likely 15 years before that when we were in all the same places, but we had no actual points of connection other than the two friends that insisted on introducing us. But there was a sense of some sort of a pattern completing itself that only became recognizable once it uh, happened to occur. But I think, you know, many key things are like that. Um, the other curious thing I've come to feel as I've gotten older too is there's not really that much of a distinction between good fortune and bad fortune. The new age idea is that you kind of conceive of a perfect life and use your you know, powers of wishful thinking or ability to co-create reality to bring about you know, some very specific things in terms of career, romance, personal health, whatever it is that you uh, imagine. Um, you know, that works to some degree. It's, you know, basic form of magic. But I think there's a danger of confusing like a truth of the small t with a truth of the big t, even though to some extent, you know, we do, we are very active participants in bringing certain things about or, um, you know, even engaging in much larger levels of interaction with the cosmos. A lot of that, I think, is has to do with things that we're meant to do, not necessarily things that we want to do. And those things are often potentially even diametrically opposed, which is one reason why I think sometimes the intervention of some higher aspect of the self uh, can easily be perceived as a kind of a threat. Um, we had mentioned, or I had mentioned, I think, how some people tend to react to my writing with some degree of uh, uneasiness or even fear. But I think it's not because of any particularly dark contents in the writing itself. It has to do just with the kind of the stage set in which the uh, events are occurring, which is much larger than kind of the normal egoic stage set. And with the interaction of uh, kind of the small self and the larger self, in ways that don't necessarily have much to do with any concept of personal comfort. I think often, most often we have to be broken apart in certain ways before being, uh, well, put back together or, you know, before we become able to recognize some larger and deeper unity that exists uh, within that brokenness, um, not necessarily even as opposed to the brokenness. Um, we tend to imagine maybe perfection as being you know, some pure sphere of harmony. But I think there's a reason that uh, chaos, darkness, evil, chance exist. Um, I have a speak often in my writing about like the fertilizing power of darkness, which by that I don't necessarily mean like an infatuation with you know, Lucifer or anything in that direction, which I find to be generally pretty silly. Much more that uh, I think it's a mistake to oppose light and darkness as uh, in some way being irreconcilable. Um, or rather, there's a tendency to just think of darkness as being a single thing, whereas darkness, you know, may involve, you know, actual purely destructive evil, but it also has an aspect of 
you know, being a fertilizer, a catalyst, and uh, active participant in bringing about uh, creative adventures that would never be possible if we clung too, uh, too desperately to the idea of harmony. So this is from The Snare of Distance and the Sunglasses of the Seer, one of the um, more visionary pieces in the book. The book tends to weave or even jump back and forth between the personal and the visionary. And this is one of the pieces more toward the later part of the book where I'm moving into a generally larger, less personal space. If we were to leap tens of thousands of miles into space, the earth with all our continents and clouds and cities and roads and industries would appear to be a blue and white marble. All life and death conflicts would be no more than abstractions. A tornado would be a kind of Sufi dance. A nuclear explosion would be the brushwork of an artist. In the forward to Masks of Origin, I have suggested that time might exist in this way as well, as something that can be experienced close up or at a distance. In this forward, <clears throat> I compare a person's life story to a novel. <clears throat> in a novel, as in a near-death experience, all events are simultaneous. We could follow the story from one page to the next. We could also read from back to front, or we could open to a page at random. The novel is an object that can be weighed in the palm of one's hand. Like the earth when viewed from tens of thousands of miles away, it exists as a self-contained volume. Viewed from the inside, the earth is chaos, the fight for survival, human drama, many billions of overlapping choices every second. Viewed from the outside, there are the rhythmic variations of a shape. Viewed one way, time is measurable. Time is what is measured by a clock, as Einstein says. Viewed another way, it is a koan that stretches, stretches our intellects to the breaking point and then beyond. Time could also be imagined as a landscape, as a spiral, as a hypersphere, as the relation between an acorn and an oak as a stage set, as a conjuration, as a snare, as a figure eight, as a labyrinth, and as an ocean. Anyway, probably stop there. That's excellent, Brian. Thank you for, for sharing all that. It's a lot to take in. Yeah. So really grateful for this opportunity. I've um, really not engaged in any long intellectual conversations during the pandemic, and I'm not at all used to um, uh, you know, talking on a podcast format. So I'm trying to really become more extrovertedly focused and um, uh, I've got a lot of work to put out. This will be uh, the book that we're publishing this year and there's another five to go. So we're planning to do about one per year for you know the next five or six years. That's right. Well, good luck. And I'm glad you were able to get started with us. And uh, I think... I'm looking forward to some of your future talks or interviews or readings. Um, is there a place online that people can find your work or contact you or find out about what's coming up? Uh, there are three, three magazines and journals where I've been posting recently. Um, so there's a dark mountain, 
I have a piece actually going up in about a week, a new piece, and there's maybe, I think, five or six on there. Uh, some of the comments, too, uh, the dialogues are, are quite good. Uh, I've been posting quite a bit about once a month or every two months on Scene 4 International Magazine of Arts and Culture, and also uh, on Metapsychosis, which is connected to Untimely Books, the, uh, the company that's publishing Masks of Origin. So any of those, uh, I don't know if we can post a link maybe, um, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of work available if anybody wants to look into it. And I pretty much respond to uh, every comment that people uh, might want to put up. And uh, if anybody wants to just reach out to contact me by uh, email or whatever, I, I guess they can maybe go, go through you or? Uh, no, they won't be able to go through me, but... Uh... But yeah, probably just post a post a comment on you know one of the places. Yeah, I mean they can publish. comment on the podcast where the podcast is posted, for sure. Yeah. And yeah, if anybody is interested in uh, any kind of a personal dialogue, I'm open to uh, uh, you know, anybody who uh, I want to reach out. Okay, wonderful. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Brian. Oh, thank you. And good luck with the book, and good luck with your future publications. Yeah, moving into a new stage of life, you know, it's everything that I've been working on really since I was about 16 has finally come full circle and to have achieved a kind of completion that I really didn't know that I was going to be able to reach. It's shocking to me to actually be able to, you know, read whole stretches of my work without wanting to uh, immediately cross things out and come up with other words or correct grammar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, things have actually wonderful. kind of come to rest so it's it's an odd experience <laughs> well, thanks so much that's great uh, thanks so much brian in the chamber of reflection and at our patreon billy and i continue the interview with brian george touching upon ultimate meaning time life and much more join us for that compelling conversation and I'd like to remind you that although you're able to listen to this podcast at no charge, it costs time and money to create. We ask you to support our efforts in the creation of future podcasts by joining the membership section at chamberofreflection.com or subscribing via Patreon at patreon.com slash occult of personality. And please remember, we're in the midst of our meditations on the Tarot Study Circle that is open to all Chamber of Reflection paid members. Later in February, we're meeting to discuss The Hanged Man, and you should join us. As always, if you're already supporting the show or have done so in the past, my heartfelt thanks, and I salute you.
Say 